0: Sarah looked beyond the promise to the promiser, and as she did so, all doubtings were stilled. She rested with full confidence on the immutability of him that cannot lie, knowing that where divine veracity is engaged, omnipotence will make it good. It is by believing meditations upon the character of God that faith is fed and strengthened to expect the blessing despite all apparent difficulties and supposed impossibilities. It is the heart's contemplation of the perfections of God which causes faith to prevail. As this is of such vital practical importance, let us enlarge thereon. To fix our minds on the things promised, to have an assured expectation of the enjoyment of them, Without the heart first resting upon the veracity, immutability, and omnipotency of God is but a deceiving imagination. Rightly did John Owen point out that the formal object of faith in the divine promises is not the things promised in the first place, but God himself in his essential excellencies of truth or faithfulness and power. Unquote. Nevertheless, the divine perfections do not of themselves work faith in us. It is only as the heart believingly ponders the divine attributes that we shall judge or conclude him faithful that has promised. It is the man whose mind is stayed upon God himself who is kept in perfect peace, Isaiah twenty-six three. that is, He who joyfully contemplates who and what God is that will be preserved from doubting and wavering while waiting the fulfillment of the promise. As it was with Sarah, so it is with us. Every promise of God has tacitly annexed to it this consideration. Is anything too hard for the Lord? Wherefore also from one was born, and that too of one having become dead, even as the stars of the heaven in multitude, and as the sand which is by the shore of the sea, the countless. Hebrews 11 verse 12 We have quoted the rendering given in the Baxter's Interlinear because it is more literal and accurate than our authorized version. The hymn in the English translation is misleading, for in this verse there is no masculine pronoun. At the most, the one must refer to one couple, but personally we believe it points to one woman, Sarah, as the born rather than the begotten intimates. We regard the twelfth verse as setting forth the fruit of her faith, namely the numerous posterity which issued from her son Isaac. The double reference to the sand and the stars calls attention to the twofold seed, the earthly and the heavenly, the natural and the spiritual Israel. Like a great multitude which no man could number of Revelation 7 verse 9, so as the stars of the sky for multitude and as the sand which is by the seashore innumerable, of our present verse is obviously an hyperbole it is figurative language and not to be understood literally. This may seem a bold and unwarrantable statement to some of our readers, yet if Scripture be compared with Scripture, no other conclusion is possible. The following passages make this clear. Deuteronomy 1 verse 10, Joshua 11 4, Judges 7 verse 12, 1 Samuel 13 verse Second Samuel 17, 11, 1 Kings four verse twenty. For other examples of this figure of speech, see Deuteronomy nine 1, Psalm seventy eight twenty seven, Isaiah sixty twenty two, and John twenty one twenty five. Hyperboles are employed not to move us to believe untruths, but by emphases arrest our attention and cause us to heed weighty matters. The following rules are to be observed in the employment of them. First, they are to be used only of such things as are indeed true in the substance of them. Second, only of things which are worthy of more than ordinary consideration. Third, set out as nearly as possible in proverbial language. Fourth, expressed in words of similarity and dissimilarity, rather than by words of equality and inequality. This last portion was a quote from William Gauge. But let our final thought be upon the rich recompense whereby God rewarded the faith of Sarah. The opening, therefore, of verse 12 points the blessed consequence of her relying upon the faithfulness of God in the face. Of the most natural discouragements, from her faith there issued Isaac, and from him, ultimately, Christ himself. And this is recorded for our instruction. Who can estimate the fruits of faith? Who can tell how many lives may be affected for good, even in generations yet to come, through your faith and my faith today? Oh, how the thought of this should stir us up to cry more earnestly, Lord, increase our faith to the praise of the glory of thy grace. Amen. Chapter 8 The Perseverance of Faith Hebrews 11, verses 13 and 14 Having described some of the eminent acts of faith put forth by the earliest members of God's family, the apostle now pauses to insert a general commendation of the faith of those he had already named, and, as is clear from verses 39 and 40, of others yet to follow. This commendation is set forth in verse 13 and is amplified in the next three verses. The evident design of the Holy Spirit in this was to press upon the Hebrews and upon us the imperative need of such a faith as would last, where, overcome obstacles, and endure unto the end. Even the natural man is capable of making good resolutions and has flashes of endeavor to please God, but he is entirely lacking in that principle which beareth all things Believeth all things, hopeth all things, endureth all things. 1 Corinthians 13, verse 7. The faith of God's elect is likened to its divine author in these respects. It is living, incorruptible, and cannot be conquered by the devil. Being implanted by God, the gift and grace of faith can never be lost. Strikingly was this illustrated in the history of the patriarchs, called upon to leave the land of their birth, to sojourn in a country filled with idolaters, owning no portion of it, dwelling in tents, suffering many hardships and trials, and living without any such peculiar temporal advantages as might answer to the singular favor which the Lord declared He bore to them. Nevertheless, They all died in faith. The eye of their hearts saw clearly the blessings God had promised and persuaded that they would be theirs in due season. They joyfully anticipated their future portion and gave up present advantages for the sake thereof. In the verses which are to be before us, the apostle then stresses the great importance of seeking and possessing a persevering faith. Therefore does he make mention of the fact that as long as they remained in this world, the Old Testament saints were believers in the promises of God. It is the durability and constancy of their faith which is commended. Despite all the workings of unbelief within records of which are found in Genesis in the case of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and all the assaults of temptation from without, they persisted in clinging to God and His Word. They lived by faith, and they died in faith. Therefore, have they left us an example that we should follow their steps. Beautifully did John Calvin point out There is expressed here a difference between us and the fathers, though God gave to the fathers only a taste of that grace which is largely poured on us, though He showed them at a distance only an obscure representation of Christ, who is now set forth to us clearly before our eyes, yet they were satisfied and never fell away from their faith. How much greater reason, then, have we at this day to persevere. If we grow faint, we are doubly inexcusable. It is then an enhancing circumstance that the fathers had a distant view of the spiritual kingdom of Christ, while we at this day have so near a view of it, and that they all hailed the promises afar off while we have them as it were quite near us. For if they nevertheless persevered even unto death, what sloth will it be to become wearied in faith when the Lord sustains us by so many helps? Were one to object and say that they could not have believed without receiving the promises on which faith is necessarily founded? To this the answer is, that the expression is to be understood comparatively, for they were far from that high position to which God has raised us. Hence it is that though they had the same salvation promised them, yet they had not the promises so clearly revealed to them as they are to us under the kingdom of Christ. But they were content to behold them afar off. Unquote. These all died in faith Hebrews 11:13 or more literally in or according to faith died these all differing from most of the commentators we believe those words taken in the persons mentioned previously from Abel onwards william Gorge said these all grammatically include those who precede as well as those which follow the relative pronoun embracing all those set forth in the catalog, namely, young and old, male and female, great and small. The same Spirit works in all, and shows forth His power in all. 2 Corinthians 4 verse 13. And of course, Against this it may be objected that Enoch died not, true, But the Apostle is referring only to those that died, just as Genesis 46.7 must be understood as accepting Joseph, who was already in Egypt. Moreover, though Enoch died not as the others, he was removed from earth to heaven, and before his translation he continued living by faith unto the very end, which is the main thing here intended. In or according to faith, died all these. The faith in which they died is the same as that described in the first verse of our chapter, namely, a justifying and sanctifying faith. That they died in faith does not necessarily mean that their faith was actually an exercise during the hour of death, but more strictly, that they never apostatized from the faith, though they actually obtained or possessed not that which was the object of their faith. Nevertheless, unto the end of their earthly pilgrimage, they confidently look forward unto the same. Five effects or workings of their faith are here mentioned, each of which we must carefully ponder. First, they received not the promises. Second, but they saw them afar off. Third, they were persuaded of them, for they embraced them. Fifth, in consequence thereof, they confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. As we shall see, God willing, when taking up later verses, some of the Old Testament saints died in the actual exercise of faith. To die in faith is to have an assured confidence in an estate of glory and bliss. John Owen said, and hereunto is required, 1. The firm belief of a substantial existence after this life. Without this, all faith and hope must perish in death. 2. A resignation and trust of their departing souls into the care and power of God. 3. They believed in a future state of blessedness and rest, here called an heavenly country, a city prepared for them by God, for faith of the resurrection of their bodies after death, that their entire persons which had undergone the pilgrimage of this life might be instated in eternal rest. Thousands who are now in their graves, were taught that it was wrong to expect death and make suitable preparations for it. They were told that the return of Christ was so near he would certainly come during their lifetime. Alas, the writer has, in measure, been guilty of the same thing. True, it is both a Christian's happy privilege and bounden duty to be looking for that blessed home and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Saviour, Jesus Christ. Titus 2.13 For this is the grand prospect which God has set before His people in all ages. But He has nowhere told us when His Son shall descend. He may do so today. He may not for hundreds of years. But to say that looking for that blessed hope makes it wrong to anticipate death, is manifestly absurd. The Old Testament saints had just as definite promises for the first advent of Christ as the New Testament saints have for his second, and they thought frequently of death. It is greatly to be feared that much of the popularity with which the premillennial and imminent coming of Christ has been received may be attributable to a carnal dread of death. A strong appeal is made to the flesh when people can be persuaded that they are likely to escape the grave. That one generation of Christians will do so is clear from 1 Corinthians 15 verse 51, 1 Thessalonians 4 verse 17, but How many generations have already supposed that theirs was the one which would be raptured to heaven, and how many of them were quite unprepared when death overtook them, only that day will show. We are well aware that these lines are not likely to meet with a favorable reception from some of our readers, but we are not seeking to please them, but God Any man who is ready to die is prepared for the Lord's return, as you may very likely die before the second advent. It is only the part of wisdom to make sure you are prepared for death. And who are they whose souls are prepared for the dissolution of the body? Those who have disarmed death beforehand by plucking out its sting and this by seeking reconciliation with God through Jesus Christ the hornet is harmless when its sting is extracted a snake need not be dreaded if its fang and poison have been removed so it is with death the sting of death is sin 1st corinthians 15:56 and if we have repented of our sins turned from them with full purpose of heart to serve God and have sought and obtained forgiveness and healing in the atoning and cleansing blood of Christ, that death cannot harm us. It will but conduct us into the presence of God and everlasting felicity. Who are ready to die? Those who evidence and establish their title to eternal life by personal holiness, which is the first fruits of heavenly glory. It is by walking in the light of God's word that we make it manifest, that we are meet for the inheritance of the saints in light. In or according to faith died all these. To die in faith we must live by faith, and for this there must be first diligent labor to obtain a knowledge of divine things. The understanding must be instructed before the path of duty can be known. Teach me thy way. Order my steps and thy word must be our daily prayer. Second, the hiding of God's word in our hearts. Its precepts must be meditated upon, memorized, and made conscious of. Only then will our affections and lives be conformed to them. God's Word is designed to be not only a light unto our understanding, but also a lamp unto our path. Our walk is to be guided by it. Third, the regular contemplation of Christ by the soul. A worshipful and adoring consideration of His fathomless love, His marvelous grace, His infinite compassion, His present intercession. This will deliver from a legal spirit, warm the heart, supply strength for duty, and make us want to please Him. In faith died all these, not having received the promises. The word promises is a metonymy for the things promised. Literally, they had received the promises, for that which they had heard from God was the basis of their faith. This is clear from Hebrews 11, 10, 14, and 16. The things promised concerned the spiritual blessings of the gospel dispensation and the future heavenly inheritance. The promises made to the fathers or elders had respect unto Christ the blessed seed and to heaven, of which Canaan was the type. Observe that This first clause, verse 13, plainly intimates that the same promises were given, though the outer shell of them vary, to Abel, Enoch, and Noah, as were afterwards repeated to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Each one died in the firm expectation of the promised Messiah and in believing views of the heavenly glory. So to die was comfortable to themselves and confirming to others the reality of what they professed. Not having received the promises. The Greek word for received signifies the actual participation in and possession of. Faith then relies upon and rests in that which is not yet ours. A large part of the life of faith Consists in laying hold of and enjoying the things promised before the actual possession of them is obtained. It is by meditating upon and extracting their sweetness that the soul is fed and strengthened. The present spiritual happiness of the Christian consists more in promises and expectant anticipation than an actual possession. For faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. It is this which enables us to say, For I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. Romans 8 verse 18 But having seen them afar off, this because the eyes of their understanding had been divinely enlightened. Ephesians 1 verse 18, And thus they were able to perceive in the promises the wisdom, goodness, and love of God. True, the fulfillment of those promises would be in the remote future, but the eye of faith is strong and endowed with long-distance vision. Thus it was with Abraham. He rejoiced to see my day, said Christ, and he saw it and was glad. John eight fifty six. Thus it was with Moses, who had respect unto the recompense of the reward, and endured as seeing him who is invisible. Hebrews eleven twenty six and twenty seven. Solomon indeed is the contrast presented in second Peter one verse nine where we read of those who fail to add to their faith virtue, knowledge, self-control, patience, godliness, brotherly, kindness, love, and in consequence of an underdeveloped Christian character, cannot see afar off, and were persuaded of them. This announces the soul satisfactory acquiescence in the veracity of God as to the making good of His Word. It was the setting too of their seal that He is true, John 3.33, which is done when the heart truly receives His testimony. The word persuaded means an assured confidence, which is what faith works in the mind. A blessed example of this is seen in the case of Abraham, who, though about a hundred years old and his wife's womb dead, yet when God declared they should have a son, he was fully persuaded that what he had promised he was able also to perform. Romans 4.21 Ah, my reader, is it not because we are so dilatory in meditating upon the exceeding great and precious promises of God that our hearts are so little persuaded of the verity and value of them, and embrace them, not with a cold and formal reception of them, but with a warm and hearty welcome, such as the nature of true faith when it lays hold of the promises of salvation. This is ever the effect of assurance a thankful and joyful appropriation of the things of God. Faith not only discerns the value of spiritual things, is fully persuaded of their reality, but also loves them. Faith adheres as well as the sense. In Scripture, faith is expressed by taste as well as sight. Faith sees with the understanding, is persuaded in the heart, and embraces by the will. Thus the order of the verbs in this verse, Hebrews 11.13, teaches us an important practical lesson. The promises of God are first viewed or contemplated, then rested upon as reliable, and then delighted in. If then we would have livelier affections, we must meditate more upon the promises of God, it is the mind which affects the heart. passing on, let us inquire, are God's promises really precious unto us? Perhaps we are ready to answer at once, yes, but let us test ourselves. Do our hearts cling to them with love and delight? Can we truly say, I have rejoiced in the way of thy testimonies as much as in all riches. Psalm 119, verse 14 What influence do God's promises have upon us in seasons of trial and grief? Do they supply us with more comfort than the dearest things of this world? In the midst of distress and sorrow, do we realize that our light affliction, which is but for a moment, worketh for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory? Second Corinthians 4:17. What effect do God's promises have upon our praying? Do we plead them before the throne of grace? Do we say with David, Remember the word unto thy servant upon which thou hast caused me to hope? Psalm 119 verse 49 And confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. They who really embrace the promises of God are suitably affected and influenced by them. Their delight in heavenly things is manifested by a weanedness from earthly things. As the woman at the well forgot her bucket when Christ was revealed to her soul. John 4.28 When a man truly becomes a Christian, he at once begins to view time and all the objects of time in a very different light from what he did before. So it was with the patriarchs. Their faith had a powerful and transforming effect upon their lives. They made profession of their faith and hope. They made it manifest that their chief interest was neither in nor of the world. They had such a satisfying portion in the promises of God that they publicly renounced such a concern in the world as other men take whose portion is only in this life. The patriarchs made no secret of the fact that their citizenship and inheritance was elsewhere. Unto the sons of Heth, Abraham confessed, I am a stranger and a sojourner with you. Genesis 23, 4. Unto Pharaoh, Jacob said, The days of the years of my pilgrimage are an hundred and thirty. Genesis 47, 9. Nor is this to be explained on the ground that other nations were then in occupation of Canaan. Long after Israel entered into possession of that land, David cried, Hear my prayer, O Lord, and give ear unto my cry. Hold not thy peace at my tears, for I am a stranger with thee and a sojourner as all my fathers were. Psalm 39, verse 12. And again, I am a stranger in the earth. Hide not thy commandments from me, Psalm 119, verse 19, So too before all the congregation he owned unto God, For we are strangers before thee, and sojourners as were all our fathers. First Chronicles 29, verse 15, Clear proof do these verses furnish that the Old Testament saints equally with the New apprehended their heavenly calling and glory. And confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. The two terms, though very similar in thought, are not identical. The one refers more to the position, the place taken, the other to the condition, how one conducts himself in that place. They were strangers because their home was in heaven, pilgrims because journeying thither. As another has said, it is possible to be a pilgrim without being a stranger, but once we realize our true strangership, we are perforce compelled to be pilgrims. We may be pilgrims, and yet in our pilgrimage may visit all the cities and churches in the world and include them all in our embrace. But if we are true sojourners, we shall be strangers to them all and shall be compelled, as Abraham was, to erect our own solitary altar to Jehovah in the midst of them all. How could Abraham be a worshipper with the Canaanites? Impossible. This is why the altar is so closely connected with the tent in Genesis 12 8, and in Abraham's surgery. E.W. Bullinger. That which was spiritually typified by the outward life of the patriarchs as strangers and pilgrims was the Christians' renunciation of the world. As those whose citizenship is in heaven, Philippians 3.20, we are bidden to be not conformed to this world, Romans 12.2. The patriarchs demonstrated that they were strangers by taking no part of the apostate religion Politics or social life of the Canaanites and evidence that they were pilgrims by dwelling in tents, moving about from place to place. How far are we making manifest our crucifixion to the world? Galatians 6.14 Does our daily walk show we are partakers of the heavenly calling? Have we ceased looking on this world as our home, and its people as our people? Are we seeking to lay up treasure in heaven, or do we still hanker after the flesh pots of Egypt? When we pray, Lord, conform me to thine image, do we mean, strip me of all which hinders? The figure of the stranger applied to the child of God here on earth is very pertinent and full. The analogies between one who is in a foreign country and a Christian in this world are marked and numerous. In a strange land, one is not appreciated for his birth, but is avoided. John 15:19. The habits, ways, language are strange to him. 1 Peter 4, verse 4. He has to be content with a stranger's fare. 1 Timothy 6, verses 7 and 8. He needs to be careful not to give offense to the government. Colossians 4, verse 6. He has to continually inquire his ways. Psalm 5, verse 8. Unless he conforms to the ways of that foreign country, he is easily identified. Matthew 26, verse 73. He is often assailed with homesickness for his heart is not where his body is. Philippians 1.23 The figure of the pilgrim, as it applies to the Christian, is equally suggestive. Moving on from place to place, he never feels at home. He finds himself very much alone, for he meets with few who are traveling his way. Those he does encounter afford him very little encouragement, for they think him peculiar. He is very grateful for any kindness shown him. Sensible of his dependence on providence, he is thankful wherever God grants him favor in the eyes of the wicked. He carries nothing with him but what he deems useful for his journey. All superfluities are regarded as encumbrances. He tarries not to gaze upon the various vanities around him. He never thinks of turning back because of the difficulties of the way. He has a definite goal in view, and toward it he steadily presses. We ought to evidence that we are strangers and pilgrims by using the things of this world when necessity requires, but not abusing them. 1 Corinthians 7.31 by being contented with that portion of this world's goods which God has assigned us, Philippians 4:11. By conscientiously seeking to discharge our own responsibility, and not being a busybody in other men's matters, First Peter 4:15. By being moderate and temperate in all things, and thus abstaining from fleshly lust which war against the soul. First Peter 2.11 By laying aside every hindering weight and mortifying our members which are upon the earth, so that we may run with patience the race that is set before us. Hebrews 12.1 By daily keeping in mind the brevity and uncertainty of this life. Proverbs 27, one. By constantly keeping before the heart our future inheritance, knowing that we shall only be satisfied when we awaken our Lord's likeness. John Calvin wrote, If they in spirit amid dark clouds took a flight into the celestial country, what ought we to do at this day? For Christ stretches forth His hand to us as it were openly from heaven to raise us up to Himself. If the land of Canaan did not engross their attention, how more weaned from things below ought we to be, who have no promised habitation in this world. End of quote. When Basil, a devoted servant of Christ at the beginning of the Dark Ages, was threatened with exile by Modestus, he said, I know no banishment, who have no abiding place here in the world. I do not count this place mine, nor can I say the other is not mine. Rather, all is God's, whose stranger and pilgrim I am. Unquote. For they that say such things declare plainly that they seek a country. Hebrews eleven fourteen. In these words, a logical inference is drawn from the last clause of the preceding verse, which supplies a valuable hint on how the Scriptures are to be expounded. The Apostle here makes known unto us what was signified by the confession of the patriarchs, just as the negative implies the positive, thou shalt not covet, meaning also thou shalt not be content with what God has given, so for saints to conduct themselves as strangers and pilgrims, and that unto the end of their sojourning in this world makes manifest the fact that they are journeying heavenwards. John Owen said, This is the genuine and proper way of interpreting Scripture, when from the words themselves, considered with relation to the persons speaking them, and to all their circumstances, we declare what was their determinate mind and sense. Unquote. For they that say such things declare plainly that they seek a country. Their confession of strangership implied more than that they had not yet entered their promised inheritance. It likewise showed they were earnestly pressing toward it. They had every reason so to do. It was their own country, for it was there God had blessed them with all spiritual blessings before the foundation of the world. Ephesians 1, verses 3 and 4. It was from there they had been born again. John 3, verse 3, margin. It was there that their father, savior, and fellow saints dwell. To seek the promised inheritance denotes that earnest quest of the believer after that which he supremely desires. It is this which distinguishes him from the empty professor. The latter desires that which is good for himself, as Balaam said. Let me die the death of the righteous. Numbers 23.10 But only the regenerate can truly say, One thing have I desired of the Lord, that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. Psalm twenty-seven, four. To seek after heaven must be the chief aim and supreme task which the Christian sets before him, laying aside all that would hinder and using every means which God has appointed. The world must be held loosely, the affections be set upon things above, and the heart constantly exercised about treading the narrow way which alone leads thither. Seek a country, Matthew Henry said, their designs are for it, their desires are after it, their discourses about it. They diligently endeavor to clear up their title to it, to have their temper suited to it, and have their conversation in it, and come to the enjoyment of it. End of quote. Heaven is here called a country because of its largeness. It is a pleasant country, the land of uprightness, rest, and joy. May divine grace conduct both writer and reader into it. Chapter 9 The Reward of Faith Hebrews 11, verses 15 and 16 Once more we would remind ourselves of the particular circumstances those saints were in to whom our epistle was first addressed. Only as we do so are we in the best position to discern the meaning of its contents and, best fitted, to make a right application of the same unto ourselves. It is not that the Hebrews were Jews according to the flesh, and we, Gentiles, for they equally with us, were holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling. Hebrews 3 verse 1 No, it is the peculiar position which they occupied with the pressing temptations that solicited them, which we need to carefully ponder. Divine grace had called them out of Judaism. John 10 verse 3 But divine judgment had not yet fallen upon Judaism. The temple was still intact and its services continued. And as long as they did so, an appeal was made to the Hebrews to return thereunto. Now that historical situation adumbrated a moral one. A Christian has been called out from the world to follow Christ, but the judgment of God has not yet fallen upon the world and burned it up. No, it still stands, and we are yet in it. And as long as this is the case... Satan seeks to get us to return thereunto.
1: This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780 450